one day after Christmas, we still have decorations up. Odds are you still have a lot of extra food in the fridge. We have bags of trash filled with wrapping paper to throw away. We have new toys and gadgets and things that we gladly received. And even though Christmas has come and gone, we still see the effects of it. We still see the effects of that day. In the same way Jesus has come and gone, we still see the effects of it today. Jesus still changes lives. Jesus is changing us. The question I have for you today is this. How are we to live in the light, capital L, the big light? How are we to live in the light of Christmas? How are things different now, today? Because Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. You know, the book of Romans is a great doctrinal work. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he discusses many very deep doctrinal themes throughout the book of Romans. Uh, Something happens as you get towards the end of Romans, the last uh, quarter, you could say, beginning at chapter 12, he takes more of a, a focus on applying the truth that he had been espousing. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a passage, Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. It's one of these heavy application passages. And and I want us to look at these instructions that Paul gives us in the light of Christmas. In other words, the only way we could live this way, and the reason why we're commanded to live this way, is because Jesus did come, and he did die, and he did rise again, and he is our Lord, and so here is how we are to live in the light of Christmas. You probably guessed what I've titled today's sermon, Living in the Light of Christmas. And we're in Romans 12, and we look at verses 9 through 21. So if you have your Bibles open to Romans 9, let's begin at verse 9. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. In some ways, that's a sermon in and of itself, just that one verse. To let love be without hypocrisy means that love is to be sincere. Hypocrisy is to be two-faced. In fact, it comes from the ancient times in the theater when one actor would maybe wear multiple masks, play multiple characters. So it's saying, let your love be sincere. Then he goes on to say, abhor what is evil. Abhor, that's a word that you just use in your everyday language around your house, right? It actually could be translated as hate because it speaks of having a vehement desire that is a dislike for something. A vehement dislike for something. To hate it. So let love be without hypocrisy and then abhor what is evil. You know, this world today wants to debate what evil is, wants to debate what sin is. But there's no debate. We know what evil and good are because of God, God's character, God's holiness. And what he has written in his word tells us what is good and what is evil. And we are told in his word here to let love be without hypocrisy, to abhor, to have an intense dislike for what is evil. But we do live in a world right now that wants to call evil good. The Bible talked about that. Years and years ago, woe to those who call evil good. That's what our world wants to do today. 
But we, as believers who have been transformed by Christ, are to let our love be to let our love be sincere, and to abhor, have a strong dislike for what is evil. But then, what's the other side of that? To cling to what is good. Now, why are we, again, to hate what is evil? Because it's against the very nature of God, his holiness. In fact, God hates what's evil so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the evil of our hearts. God has crucified his son. That's how much he hates evil. And he tells us, look, if you're going to be like Jesus, if Jesus is going to live through you, if you're going to follow Jesus, then you've got to hate what is evil, but also to cling to what is good. You know, um, this Greek word that we translate here as cling, it, it often is used about having a very close relationship with somebody. And we're to have a close relationship with that which is good. And again, how do we know what is good? Well, because of God's character, because of his holiness, because of what he has shared with us in his word. It's, it's fixed. We know the difference between evil and good. We just don't like to always acknowledge it. It's much clearer than I think we're comfortable with admitting. Because if we know what is good, then there is the implied understanding that, oh, we have to do something about it. So let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. I remember one of my first trips to the Dallas World Aquarium many years ago. There was a part we were walking around, and you kind of are going up this, this winding ramp with just things to look at all, all around, all kinds of animals and aquariums. And there was this one area I was particularly interested in because they had a sloth, and I wanted to see this sloth. I thought it would be neat to see one. And we, got, and we got to where the sloth should be, but I didn't see the sloth. And I remember thinking, where is it? The sign says it's here. This is the sloth. It's supposed to be right here. And I believe it was bamboo that they had. It was some kind of a tree. I think it was bamboo that they had right there where the sloth was supposed to be. And there's a railing, and I remember going, where is the sloth? Where is the sloth? And then I kind of jumped because something caught the core of my eye, and it was the sloth. I could have reached out and touched him. But they moved so slow, and he was so intertwined with the bamboo, he just blended into his surrounding. And I thought, that's a good picture of how we are called to be with what is good in Jesus Christ. Our lives are to be so intertwined with the glory of God, with the leading of His Spirit, with being saturated with His Word, that what happens is when we are so intertwined and clinging to what is good, do you know what the natural response to evil will be? We'll abhor it. You see, the effort is not, oh, I've got to abhor what is evil, I've got to hate what is evil. No, cling to what is good. And when you are truly clinging to what is good, you won't want to have anything to do with what is evil. See how that works? And it brings us to our first point today is this. Jesus breaks our chains so that we can cling to what is good. Salvation is spoken of in many different ways in the Bible. It's talked about being delivered, being set free. And what sin is, is sin is bondage. Sin becomes our master. The Bible talks about being slaves to sin. And so when we're slaves to sin, we can't cling to what is good. You follow me there? So what we find in this passage is this is an impossible command to obey apart from a saving faith in Jesus Christ. There are people that live good lives and they're called good people. 
but they're still not living the life that God's called them to do, which is holiness in Jesus Christ. And what happens in salvation is we are actually given the ability through the forgiveness of sins and God's Spirit coming to dwell in us, we're actually given the ability now to cling to what is good. We're given the ability to be free from our chains. People are freed from alcoholism. People are freed from drug abuse. People are freed from depression. People are freed from their sin, not because they just tried a little bit harder, but because a rescuer named Jesus left heaven, came to earth, broke our chains, and said, now because of what I've done on your behalf, you can cling to what is good because of who I am and what I've done for you. That's our privilege as a believer. So we can read Romans 12, 9, an impossible verse, and go, in Jesus Christ, I can do that. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? In Jesus Christ, that can be me. And why? It's because Jesus has done it before us. He is our example. Think about when he came to this world and he was tempted by Satan. What did he do? He clung to what was good. He answered every temptation with what? Scripture. When Jesus was going about his life, living a perfect life, giving us that example, being misunderstood by his family, hated by others, how is he portrayed? He often went away to be alone with his father, clinging to what was good. When Jesus was dying on a cross and they were mocking him, saying, you who saved others, save yourself if you are the son of God. He could have at that moment gotten in the flesh and said, that is it, I'm done with these people. The great human experiment has ended. But he didn't. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He maintained his relationship with his heavenly Father. He clung to what was good even on the cross. And because he has gone before us, because he has given us the example, then he can tell us through his word, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, because that's what I do. And I'm desiring to do it through you. But let's move on. Verse 10 says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. I laugh because in the Greek, this is an interesting verse. The way that this is uh, written in Greek, it has this brotherly love word twice in different forms. But it's te Philadelphia. You know the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Eis alalothos, which is one another. And then it has the word in it for brotherly love, but in a different form a second time. Philotrophia goi. And so what he's saying is, a very wooden translation would be, brotherly love towards one another, dearly loving. Brotherly love towards one another, dearly loving. Again, it doesn't translate to English very well, but when you see something repeated in that way in the Greek, it's for a point of emphasis. He's saying, dearly love the dearly loved. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, love them dearly as they are dearly loved. And so there's an emphasis here, and then he goes on in verse 10, and he says, in honor, giving preference to one another. Now, shame and honor were huge in the ancient Eastern cultures, and they're still big in Eastern cultures. Um, Jesus was known as the what? Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. So, What happened was in ancient Eastern cultures is 
the way that you lived your life and what you did and the decisions you made, they not only reflected on you, they reflected on your family, and many times they would reflect on your town. Again, Jesus was called as Jesus of Nazareth. So it was kind of like he was known by the town he lived in, and his town, people had a view of his town by what he did. As shame and honor were very big in their culture. But what has happened in our Western societies, we've had such a focus on the individual uh, that we just think that whatever we do only matters for us. We don't really have any bearing on others. It doesn't matter how our actions affect others. But what Paul is saying here in Romans is, look, love the dearly loved. Love them dearly. Dearly love the dearly loved and give honor to one another. And then I think what happens in the remaining verses is, verses 11 through 16 is he explains to us what that really looks like. This concept of honor, I was looking at some different translations, and one um, Greek lexicon pointed out that some of the more ancient translations, uh, old ancient to us, like the Latin Vulgate or the Syriac or Armenian, they translate Romans 12.10 as to try to outdo one another in showing respect. So what Paul's saying in Romans is love each other dearly and respect one another, which is an expression of love. I remember um, (laughs) one time Katie and I were invited to a dinner, and a very nice family invited us over for dinner, and it was a great dinner, and we went home, and the next day I wrote a thank you letter to this family, and I put it in the mail to them, and about a week later I got a letter back, and I open it up, and I read it, and it said, uh, thank you for your thank you letter. We also enjoyed our time with you, and we wanted you to know how much we appreciated your letter. And I read that to Katie. I was like, did she just thank you my thank you? I was like, I didn't know you could do that. I said, I'm not going to let this go. I'm going to write her back, see how long we keep this going. No, I didn't do that. But You know, it's one of those things where it's saying try to outdo one another in giving honor to one another. And this is an expression of love. And then he gives us more of what that looks like. Let's just walk through verses 11 through 16 really quick. He says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know what it says uh, when it says not lagging in diligence? He's saying if there's something good you ought to do, if there's honor to give to someone, if there is a way for you to show love, don't be lazy about it. Be diligent at it. If there's good for you to do, get after that good. Don't leave it for tomorrow. Do today the good that you ought to do. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Spirit. Fervent is to be zealous. To have a passion about the good that you are doing. And he says serving the Lord. And that's the key. Why are we to treat one another this way? Why are we to do good when we're able to? Why are we to show love and honor It's because of Jesus. He is the reason. Verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. We could really spend a lot of time breaking each one of these down. I wrote in my notes for verse 12 just a summary statement. I said, stay in the process and rejoice in it. So he says in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly. That's the idea of persevering in prayer. So the idea is that, you know, life is not always easy. There are times where life is very difficult, but because of Jesus, we are to persevere. We are to stay in the process. 
to stay in what God is doing in our life. And in Jesus, we can even rejoice in it. That as we are persevering, that as we are enduring, that as God is doing this work, we can rejoice in the midst of the process. Then verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. You know, uh, Paul took up several special offerings for the poor. We see that in the epistles and in Acts. And this talking about giving to hospitality, these really go together because, uh, first of all, they had a lot of slaves and poor people that were in the early church. There were people that would go and, and a husband would just hope to get a job and work as a day laborer for that day to have enough to purchase food to take home for that night for his family to eat. They literally lived hand to mouth. There were a lot of people that lived that way. So when these brothers and sisters in Christ came together and someone was rich and they had other brothers and sisters that were poor, and first of all, they wouldn't have normally associated with one another, but now in the church they're together, then those who had much were to help those who had little. But then it also says given to hospitality. Hospitality was huge in ancient times because they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have email, they didn't have triple A they could call. So what happens is if you're traveling, and you plan, okay, we're going to get to this city 30 miles away where we know somebody and we can stay and we'll be safe. And then something happens. Your mule gets sick. You break a tire uh, on your wagon. Something unexpected happens. And you only make it 15 miles and you're getting to a city 15 miles away, but you know no one in that city. There wasn't a Motel 6. Tom Bodette was not leaving a light on for you. So what do you do? What do you do when you show up in a small town knowing no one? What do you do? And the evenings would get cold in the wilderness. It's kind of a desert arid region. You need shelter. You need protection. Well, given the hospitality, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> the word that we translate as given, it's actually used often to talk about pursuing someone even to the point of harassing them. Uh, so when it's saying given to hospitality, it means, look, some of you may have the gift of hospitality, and that is wonderful. But even if you don't, because you are a believer in Jesus Christ, when you see someone that is in need, you should pursue them almost to the point of harassing them to do whatever you can to meet that need. Given to giving to the poor, given over to hospitality. Why would he say that? Because it's an expression of what? Of love. Going back to verse 10, being kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. He's showing us what that looks like. And again, it all points back to who? To Jesus. He's our example in all of this. I remember uh, talking with Luther and Marceline Swan. They've both gone on to be with the Lord years ago. And they used to own one of the gas stations here uh, at the intersection where the highway is. And this is before cell phones and before a lot of the things that we have today, modern conveniences. And they would often have people that would break down on Highway 20 that would walk. They'd see lights ahead and they'd walk to the gas station. And you know what Luther would do? Now, again, I want you to be safe, Okay. But often, Luther and Marceline would take people that were stranded on 20, take them home, feed them, give them a place to stay, and help them figure out how they could fix whatever problem they had that next day. Man, what a picture of Christ, right? 
that he comes to those who are in need and he doesn't shame us going, I can't believe you're in such need. No, he comes to us in our point of need and he meets our need and he raises us up. But let's, let's move on. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. To bless means to speak favorably. And we'll see what he's getting into here now as he's saying, don't get into mudslinging with other people. Somebody does you wrong, you bless them and we'll see why. You speak favorably to them. Don't get into cursing with them. Now, why does he say that? Well, let's keep on. It'll be explained even further. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Again, these are a lot of commands. It seems really dense. But again, all of these are possible because of who Jesus is. For verse 15, I just wrote this down. Love knows when to rejoice and love knows when to weep. Love knows what is appropriate at the right time. If you truly love people, you will know what they need and when they need it. And if you're acting in love, you'll be timely about it. You'll know the right time. God will lead you in that. You know, when I first um, came to the church, I had two of my friends that were battling things, one that had brain cancer and one that had ALS, and they both passed away within my first few years here, and uh, those were honestly miserable deaths to watch them die. And one of my friends that had brain cancer, Chance, when he lived in McKinney, I remember one day going just to be with him. Uh, The cancer was taking away his ability to speak, so he was just getting his words really mixed up and so then he would get frustrated because he couldn't say what he wanted to say and I remember driving one day and I just felt like I was just supposed to go watch college football with him he was a big college football fan he was an engineer uh, for trains and so I just went and uh, he was just a, a man's man all the way around and we went and we talked about the Lord some and I read some scripture to him and I prayed with him but he had a hard time talking And when he would talk, he'd get frustrated and he'd feel embarrassed by it. And love told me in that moment, the best thing I could do was to just sit with my friend and watch college football with them all Saturday. Because that told him that there was somebody else that was with him that cared about him and he wasn't alone in that struggle. You know, we're told to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. And you know how we'll know the right time to do the right thing? It's if we love people. And as we love them, we'll know the right thing to do. God will lead us in that. Verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. He says, be of the same mind. In other words, look, if we're a family of God then be of the same mind, be humble towards one another, think of one another, give honor to one another. Don't take the position of, look how I'm so much better, so much more deserving than everybody else around me. And I would say that is, that attitude, a sinful attitude of exalting ourselves over others, is one of the greatest sources of conflicts in the history of human beings. Because of success or because of education or because of perspective that someone has that they think is right, they think that they're better than everyone else in the room. And the Bible is saying that if you're following Jesus, that attitude has no place in your life. 
Because Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of the universe, who literally has never done any wrong, humbled himself, stepped down from heaven, taking on the form of a bondservant, humbled himself even to the point of death that we might be saved. And so if you are going to follow Jesus, you better be pursuing humility rather than lording your success or what you've gotten right or your wealth or whatever you have that's gone right for you. If you allow that to create you to have a sense of superiority over your other brothers and sisters in Christ, guess what? You don't understand grace because it's only the grace of God that has allowed you to have what you have. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus meets us where we are so we can do likewise to one another. And aren't you grateful for it? Jesus meets us where we're at so that we, in turn, being raised up by him, can go and be humble and gracious towards one another. I remember when I was a first-year Bible college student, I had gone to junior college, had about two years done in junior college. I had taken three English classes, so I had all my English credits. What happened was my first year English credit, I found this professor that I liked. He was super easy. I had a good rapport with him. He let me get away with murder. I hated English class, so I took all three classes with him and didn't learn a lick of English, right? Just got it done. At that point, I didn't care anything about it. I just knew I needed those credits. Well, now I've surrendered to ministry. I'm going to Bible college my first semester. One of my classes, I have to write an eight to 10 page research paper. Now, I am new to ministry. I've given my life over the Lord. Lord, whatever you want my life to be, it is yours. I'm going to Bible college. I became so disheartened by this eight to 10 page research paper that I could not figure out how to write that I was beginning to think, well, maybe I'm just not cut out for Bible college. Maybe I'm just not able to do this. I just got to figure out how to serve the Lord uh, without pursuing this education. And I went in and talked to a man called David that worked in the registrar's office. And I told him, I was like, man, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm new to ministry. I'm trying to serve the Lord. I'm trying to be faithful. I don't, I don't know what to do. I mean, I was even friends, good friends, with my English teacher in high school. I mean, as far as English is concerned, I got away with murder my entire life, right? So then it comes time to pay the piper, and I'm freaking out. I'm thinking my life has ended over an 8- to 10-page paper. You know what David did? He didn't say, well, you sorry sucker, you should have learned something. He didn't do that. He saw me in my point of need. And he said, well, let me help you with that. And he walked me through the process. And I was never more proud of a bee in my life. He helped me learn what I was lacking. He drew near to me at my point of need. He didn't come to rub my face in it. He didn't come to shame me. He didn't come to say, well, let me explain to you why you're in this position. You, you made all these poor choices, so you're just going to have to sit and stew in it. No, he saw me at my point of need, and he said, let's do something about that. And I'm so grateful that he did. That's how Jesus is done. And you know what? If we exalt ourselves over one another, we're not being like Jesus. Think about it this way. When your power goes out in your house, what do you do? Do you 
turn on the light on your phone or grab a flashlight and go running into a bathroom and close the door and sit there with your light and not let any of your family know you have light? Is that what you do? Do you grab that flashlight and keep it hidden? You go running into a closet, you go gather up all the other flashlights and be like, ha ha, too slow. I got all the light in here. Is that what you do? No, when there's a power outage and you have light, what do you do? I've got light, I've got a flashlight. You go running to help your kids, you help others, you get the flashlights on, you find where the batteries are because your flashlights are dead, right? If you have received the light, you go help others that still need it. And that's who we're called to be in Jesus Christ, is taking what we have in him and sharing it with one another. Jesus meets us where we're at, where we were, so that we can go and do likewise to one another. But let's get into our final few verses for today. Verse 17, we'll move quickly. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. This goes back to, again, blessing those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse, right? Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. He's saying don't take matters into your own hands. You're not the judge. This goes This goes immediately with verse 16 in a way that I think we skip over. What it's saying is, if you're being humble, then the result is in your relationship with one another, you're not going to judge one another in repaying one another evil. Because repaying someone evil is a judgment. What you're saying is, I understand you, and I understand your situation, and I understand what you deserve, and I'm going to give you what I think you deserve. You may be able to know a lot about somebody's life, but whatever you know is just a small iota compared to God who created them and knows them and knows the purpose that he has for them. And God has not called us to be judge and juries of one another. When we do that, we're actually revealing the pride and the arrogance of our own hearts. He's saying, look, again, you have to keep verses 16 and 17 together. Be humble and then don't repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. I think of David and and King Saul. Man, King Saul was constantly after David, trying to kill him. And David tried to live at peace with Saul. But there are so many, there are only so many times that you'll let somebody try to pin you to a chair with a spear before you go, I'm going to keep my distance from you from now on. And that's what happened with David and Saul. David did all that he could to live at peace with Saul, but Saul had made up his mind he was not going to live at peace with David. What I've learned in the years that I've been alive is I can't control other people's actions, but I am accountable to God for mine. And that's what's at the core here of this verse. It's saying, look, you do what is right before God because in Jesus Christ, guess what? You can. That's an option now in Jesus You can do what is good. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God's saying, I am much more qualified to deal with your life and the things that surround you than you are, so why don't you let me be God and you be you? And he's quoting here in verse 19 from Deuteronomy 32. And then he goes on, verse 20. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And he's quoting from Proverbs 25. But I want you to understand, this all goes back to verse 10, the the love. He's saying, in love, treat each other this way. 
And that includes those who want to harm you, who want to do evil towards you, who sit in judgment of your life. Don't allow their sin to cause you to sin. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. That in Jesus Christ, I can live in such a way where if, even if everybody around me is acting like a fool, I don't have to get in it with them. Because the judge sees it all. I can let him take care of it. And there's a freedom in that, isn't it? And there's a conviction in our hearts to go, we need to quit assuming that we really know what's going on in everybody's heart. And to be gracious and to be humble and to be kind of one of, to when we find the light, go help others. To be encouragers of one another. That brings us to our third final point today is this. Jesus saved you to live saved. The saved life is a lifelong response to the grace of God. You know, the last verse today is this, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He kind of ends with where he started in verse 9. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Uh, that's called an inclusio. You have a, a theme at the beginning and the end with stuff sandwiched in the middle. And he's saying, look, it's not only to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. It is to overcome evil with what? With good. And why can we do that? Why do we not have to be afraid of evil? Why can we overcome it with good? Because, again, that's what Jesus Christ has done. And so as believers in him, we don't have to live reactive lives, allowing everyone around us to choose how we live. We can live lives that are responsive to the grace of God. You know, right now in football season, you'll see this a lot of times on Sundays or Saturdays. There'll be one team that's really picking at the other. And one of the things that's going on there is, is a strategy. If there is a personal foul, that's a big penalty against your team. So what happens is, let's say those two linemen are heading up. There's the offense and the defensive linemen, and they're talking all kinds of trash at the line, trying to irritate one another. Now, it doesn't matter what the other says to the ref. It matters who throws the punch, and that's the one that gets the penalty. This world is trying to get you to throw that punch. This world is going to be in your ear. Other people are going to be in your ear. At times, other believers will be in your ear. But if we understand who we have in Jesus Christ, we can actually overcome evil with good. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing to know that God has that in store for you as his child? This is possible. This isn't just some pie-in-the-sky chapter that Paul wrote that said it would be nice if we could all do this. These are actually commands that God Almighty has sent to us as his children saying, in Jesus Christ, here is how your life is to be characterized. It's impossible. And in that is where God is glorified. That I can go look at the life that God is empowering me to live. It's only about him and he receives the glory for it when we live this way. You know, many people live their lives frantically reacting to the decisions of others in the world around them, but that is not how we're to live in the light of Christmas. Because Jesus has come, because he is alive, because he's going to return one day, I live my life in the light of Christmas, not in the light of what other people around me do. And that is a life responding, lifelong 
response to the grace of God, realizing that I am not my own. I was bought with a price. I belong to Jesus. He will have the last say of my life. And so I can focus on serving him and loving him and being obedient to him, and I can let him sort out the rest. The same is true for all of us, just like the shepherds. The shepherds were forever changed that night. I mean, how could they not be? They're keeping watch of their flocks in the fields by night, right? And a heavenly host appears, singing to them, telling them that the Messiah has been born. They follow a star. They meet the baby Jesus. Man, talk about a a story to tell. For the rest of their lives, they knew we've met the Messiah. Their lives were changed. And again, as we bring the sermon to a close, God has called us to live in the light of Christmas. Romans 12 is just a short, really, descriptor of the Christian life. There's a lot more to it. But man, it's a great place to start. In light of who Jesus is, that he has come, and who he is in our lives, here is how we get to live as believers in Jesus Christ. Read those verses and think, man, wouldn't that be great if that's how my life was described? This is a good life. This is a great life. And that's what God has for us in Jesus Christ. Would you please stand with me as we prepare to sing a song of response? I don't know about you, but as I was preparing for this morning and reflecting on this passage, I, I hope I've been able to adequately communicate the excitement I have about this, that in light of who Jesus is, we can live this way. That's a great thing. And that as we do, God is glorified through it because we can't live that way in and of our own strength. It's all about Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in him, listen, God does not save you just to live a better life. Okay. God saves you. God saves you to bring glory to his name. And that obedience to him is how you do it. He saves you that heaven might be your home, that you might be called by his name forever be his. And if you've never put your faith in Christ to truly be saved, man, today is the day to turn from your way, to look to Jesus, to say, I believe in you. You saved me and helped me to live this miraculous life that's laid out in your word. And you'll see that God will be faithful to fulfill his word in your life. I'm going to pray, and as we sing, I'll be down front. What a great time to just pause and reflect on the life that God has for us in Jesus Christ. To give him thanks for what he's called us to as we enter into this new year. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you call us and you empower us and you've changed us to where we can actually live this kind of life. That's exciting to me. I don't have to be stuck in the muck and mire of this world and the sin and fighting my own battles and taking my own vengeance or repaying others. I don't have to do that. I can live free from that. I can be free in you. And you love me. Thank you, Lord. What a great life you have in store for us in Jesus Christ. We give you thanks today. We're excited about who you are today. We're excited about the life we get to live in you today. 
Lord, as a church, we commit ourselves just afresh and anew to you as we begin this new year. And I pray as we go through the 21 days of fasting and prayer, this would be an opportunity to just tune our hearts afresh and anew to you as a church body, as a family. And to do what verse 10 says, to dearly love one another and to grow together in love. Lord, thank you that you love us. You've loved us first. You've given yourself for us. And that is our hope. Bless now this time of response as we respond to your goodness in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.